So good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the last in my series of lectures this year, which I gave the title of Theatres of Revolution, the Architecture of Disruption. Over the last year, we have followed the first Stuart King from Scotland via Denmark to London, where he set up an extremely unusual series of royal residences. You wouldn't even call them palaces. In my second lecture, we considered the fortunes of Charles I during the Civil War and the way he set up Oxford colleges and medieval castles to be royal houses. In my third, we looked at Charles II in exile, living in the Channel Islands, in France and in the Low Countries, and how he managed to maintain a sense of regality. And tonight, we come to the final revolution of the century, the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688. And like my last lecture, we're going to spend much of it out of England in the Low Countries, because of course, William III was a Dutchman who came to the British throne when James II fled the country. But perhaps I should take up my story tonight where I left off last time because as Charles II sailed for England to take his crown in 1616, one of those who saw him off on the quayside in Scheveningen in the Dutch, in the Dutch Republic was the nine-year-old William of Orange. And this is a wonderful painting here uh, showing Charles leaving the uh, Netherlands and you can just see standing by him on the quayside, the diminutive figure of William of Orange, who uh, at nine years old uh, was to become, unbeknownst to everybody, the King of Britain. In 1660, uh, William was a ward of the Dutch state, and the role of stadtholder, which his father had held until his sudden death in 1650, was in abeyance. The stadtholder was not a sovereign head of state. He was the first and supreme servant of the states of Holland and the chief of the Dutch army. The House of Orange Nassau, which William of Orange became the head of while he was still in his mother's womb, was a European dynasty closely related to the royal families of England, France, and several German princely states. They uh, had substantial private revenues of perhaps a million guilders a year from their estates in the Dutch Republic, in France and Germany, and they maintained a series of magnificent residences uh, and hosted their own populous court. The um, ancient seat of the Nassau dynasty, which I show you here, was at Breda, it was a massive, square, moated castle, begun in the 1530s and furnished by William III's grandfather with a great series of tapestries celebrating the members of the House of Nassau. By the time uh, William's father became stadtholder in 1647, he favoured the family residence of Honselaasdijk, which was um, seven miles from the Hague towards Delft. See a print of it here uh, on my screen. 
Honsalar's dag had been refined over a long period between 1621 and 1646 as the principal summer residence for the Orange Court. It had space for formal uh, receptions and um, state events. It was set in fine hunting country and it was also uh, furnished with extensive stables. Its layout was heavily influenced by the Palais de Luxembourg, and I'm going to show you here my reconstruction of its ground plan. Uh, the main block, which you see at the bottom of the slide, was connected to two pavilions at the top of the slide by galleries that made up three sides of a courtyard. A colonnade and a gallery at the top of the slide uh, close the fourth side of the courtyard. On the First floor were symmetrical apartments sharing a central hall and leading to two antechambers. In the square pavilions at each corner, in the bottom right and left, were the presence chambers, bedchambers and closets, each of them connected to the long gallery. While Onselasdijk was the closest thing William's father had to a modern residence of state, he also owned two hunting lodges. Uh, House Turn Newburg was begun uh, five miles east of The Hague at Ryswick in 1630 as a private lodge without accommodation for court officials. It was also designed after the French pavilion system of planning, but this one, as you can see from the slide, was not a courtyard, it was a single range. And here, two remote pavilions at either end of the range, I think hopefully you can see them there, were linked by galleries to a central block that contained the main rooms. His other uh, hunting lodge was at Deeren in Gelderland, on the southeastern border of the excellent hunting grounds of the Velouve. Uh, you see it here. It's not a very good image because we don't have an image of it in William's grandfather's time. The block to the right-hand side is in fact built by William after he becomes King of England. The bit to the left uh, shows the original um, house. Uh, and in the first part of his uh, reign as stateholder, uh, William spent uh, as much as 10 weeks a year at Deerham um, hunting uh, in the countryside far and wide. In 1645, William's grandmother had begun House Ten Boss, which literally means house in the wood. This was uh, intended to be her dower house. Right beside The Hague, this was designed by Pieter Post, the Stadtholder's official architect, uh, with the assistance of Jacob van Kampen, who was the chief exponent of Dutch classical architecture. The house, which you see a cross-section of here, was a square villa with a spectacular central domed hall that became a celebration of the Orange family in the way that the banqueting house in Whitehall celebrated the dynasty of the Stuarts. Around uh, the central hall, and I'm going to show you my um, uh, reconstructed plan of it here, uh, was, uh, were the apartments, uh, each of them comprising an anteroom used as a presence chamber with a canopy of state in it. And this led to a bedchamber with a bed of state, 
behind a balustrade. And beyond this was a private closet, uh, a smaller um, uh, closet, um, and a dressing room. Now, in 1668, uh, William turned uh, 18, and his minority came to an end. And he inherited his estates, their income, and the residences I have just shown you, with the exception of House Ten Boss, which his grandmother was still living in, and which only came to him in 1686. Uh, at the same time, he entered political life, starting to attend meetings of the Council of State as an ordinary member. And I'm just showing you on the screen here a, a map of the Dutch Republic so that you can get your bearings and see exactly where William's residences actually were. Now, while William was a rich man, he was also owed considerable sums of money by the Stuarts, who his family had loyally supported through the Civil War and the English Republic. It was to reclaim these funds that William accepted an invitation from his uncle, uh, Charles II, in 1670 to travel to England. The 20-year-old uh, prince uh, arrived at Whitehall in November and was given specially fitted up lodgings in the cockpit, that was the uh, east side of uh, the Palace of Whitehall. He remained at the um, English court until the end of February 1671, being entertained in the most lavish style. He visited Windsor Castle, he went to Oxford, he went to Cambridge, he went to the races at Newmarket, and he was dined by the Lord Mayor of London and spent many uh, jolly evenings at Charles II's table. On the whole, uh, he made rather a good impression, although he was thought to be a little bit dour and reserved. The king encouraged him one night to get drunk, but William apparently couldn't hold his drink and ended up smashing the windows of the maids of honour's lodgings before being escorted to his bedchamber. William had no idea that his duplicitous uncle had conducted a secret treaty with France and that he would declare war on the United Provinces the following year. In 1672, as the English led an attack uh, against uh, William by sea, Louis XIV's armies poured over the border into the Spanish Netherlands and pressed on towards the United Provinces. The Dutch were hopelessly unprepared and their army collapsed like a deflating balloon. In July 1672, Louis XIV made a triumphal entry into Utrecht. Uh, the slide I'm showing you here isn't actually him entering Utrecht, it's him uh, entering Maastricht um, in 1673, and you see the city in the background, uh, an angel flying over Louis's head, holding a victor's wreath over him. It's a painting by Pierre Mignard. Uh, William was now the only hope, and by popular acclaim, he was made Captain General of the Dutch Army and Stadtholder. The situation was catastrophic. It was described by the English poet Andrew Marvell as an earthquake, a hurricane, and a deluge. It was not only William's family name that made him first the leader and then the hero of the Dutch fight back. 
He quickly proved himself to be a talent on campaign and in the council chamber. Nevertheless, the struggle against France would continue for the rest of his life, and in some ways it became almost the reason for it. Peace was concluded with England in early 1674, and a few months later, William bought a farmhouse, House Sosdyke, in the province of Utrecht. While this was certainly to provide new hunting grounds, it was also to establish a seat in the west of the country where the oranges had little presence. In 1670, uh, William had appointed as his personal architect Moritz Post, the 25-year-old son of the former Stadtholder's architect, Pieter Post. Post extended the original farmhouse, adding two wings for William and a future consort. The exterior was exceedingly plain and restrained, but inside the house was uh, densely decorated with contemporary paintings. Um, here's Hondakota's uh, paintings that were in the entrance hall, two incredibly grand uh, still lives set in arched niches. These are now in the Rijksmuseum. Um, and uh, you can see uh, an orange tree in the garden on the right-hand uh, image, um, obviously alluding to the House of Orange. And the park behind, you can see, is populated by all sorts of birds, uh, including peacocks and a turkey, as indeed uh, the grounds actually were. Although William had inherited fine gardens laid out by his grandfather, at Sosdyke he was to create his own, and gardening came with hunting to be his greatest passion. And Sosdyke was his first experiment, undertaken with the collaboration of Hans Wilhelm Bentinck, his closest friend and fellow gardening fanatic. The house, as you see uh, on my slide, was flanked by two compartments containing a pair of parterres each, with a great statue in the middle of each parterre. The parterres were bounded um, on either side with orchards of dwarf fruit trees planted in rows. And then great avenues thrust their way out from this inner core, penetrating the parkland where his deer roamed free. As well as architecture, and gardening, a more peaceful life, caused William to think about matrimony. Despite England's double dealing, it was clear to him that a marriage with Mary Stuart, Charles II's niece, who you see here, and of course the Duke of York's eldest daughter, would potentially secure him the British throne. Meanwhile, Charles II saw the benefits of marrying her to William, cementing his rather shaky Protestant credentials at home without, he believed, uh, destroying his relationship with Louis XIV of France. Before William made his move, he made detailed inquiries into what Mary was actually like. He had enough trouble in his life, he told the English ambassador at The Hague, without a wife who might add to it. Fully satisfied with what he heard, William made his way to England in October uh, 1677 to discuss a possible marriage. Now he was head of state, and his arrival demanded a considerable uh, amount of expense and meticulous planning.
The Stadtholder was received by Charles II at Newmarket, where he was accommodated in the Duke of Ormond's house and furnished with a retinue of 50 English attendants who joined 40 of his own. At Whitehall, uh, the Duke of York had vacated his lodgings at the waterside at the end of the matted gallery in preparation for William's arrival. The royal wardrobe furnished the apartments and hired in new furniture, including four large tables set up to feed William's entourage twice a day. Mary's lodgings were in St James's, which you see here, and it was there in her closet that her father told her that she was to marry William in a few days' time. They married on William's 27th birthday at nine in the evening in Mary's bedroom at St James's Palace. And after the blessing, she was undressed and taken to her bed. When William was safely tucked in beside her, the king drew the curtains, crying, now, nephew, to your work, Hey, St George for England! And the couple were left to get to know each other. William and Mary arrived in Holland in terrible weather after a ghastly crossing, and they made straight for Hanselaarsdijk, which I show you on the screen here, where uh, William uh, uh, saw to it that uh, Mary and her ladies were escorted to her apartment. What expectation the tall, dark, vivacious 15-year-old had is not known. But she was probably very pleasantly surprised by the elegant and symmetrical house with its beautiful gardens and well-ordered and compact lodgings. Only the year before, writing to her friend and confidant, Frances Apsley, she reflected on what happiness was, and she mused, I quote, I could live and be content with a cottage in the country and a cow, a stiff petticoat and waistcoat in the summer, and cloth in the winter, a little garden to live upon the fruit and herbs it yields. Hanselarsdijk and her husband's hunting lodges may well have fulfilled that fantasy. They were everything that her homes at St James's and Richmond were not. They were domestic, they were comfortable, they were modern, and they were clean. Mary had five days to explore her new home and prepare for her formal entry into The Hague. This was conducted with great splendour by the States General, including the obligatory triumphal arches, under which Mary's carriage passed, crushing beneath its wheels sweet herbs strewn by 24 young virgins. She arrived at the Binnenhof, which you see here in a modern photograph, the official residence of the Stadtholder and seat of the government. In English terms, I suppose it was the equivalent to Whitehall and Westminster. Although it belonged to the States of Holland, it housed the Stadtholder's official quarters, a long range containing two suites of apartments, one above each other, uh, for the Stadtholder and his consort. You can see this on my diagram here, I hope, quite clearly. These quarters had been extended and redecorated in 1632-4, to 4, 
And within months of his marriage, uh, William had them extended again. And you can see uh, in the slightly darker tone, William's extension on my slide. The Stadtholder's lodgings were on two floors linked by a large stair that gave access to both. So if you look at my plan here, I'm just going to give you a quick tour. The first uh, room is for the guards, that's room number four. And after an anteroom, room number five, there was the so-called great room, number six, that led to a drawing room, number seven. Beyond this came the new rooms that William uh, had built for himself and Mary, the most important of which was his state bedchamber, number 10, containing an alcove for a state bed. And beyond this came a small cabinet and a long gallery, which is marked as number 13. At the end of this was a large room, which was called in the 18th century, the music room, number 16. All this, apart from the ceiling of Mary's bedchamber has been swept away. And uh, the ceiling of her bedchamber is now in the Rijksmuseum. Although William had been brought up at the Binnenhof, he didn't like living there. He hated the crowds of suitors, uh, uh, and the only thing that would hold him there longer than a few days was the theatre, which uh, he had set up in the old riding school there um, and engaged players from France, Italy and Flanders to perform in. William's household had 13 noblemen in attendance, 24 household officials, 26 footmen in green livery, 22 pages dressed in blue satin, crimson and gold, 32 manservants, 27 Swiss guards in blue cloaks, three chambermaids and 15 in the kitchens. Mary's household was another 40 people, mainly comprising her English attendants. And so in all, the combined household was about 200 people. Small compared to the English royal household of 900, but large even for a great nobleman. Like all 17th century princes, William was obsessed with hunting and kept a large stable. This is a, a wonderful illustration here of William when he's king um, at uh, his house of Hedlow, which I'll talk about in a moment, coming back from a hunt surrounded by his dogs and his, uh, his horses. Um, so he kept a large stable, he kept packs of hounds and a substantial hunting establishment. Although his hunting lodge at Deeren was sufficient for a bachelor, it was no place for a married stadtholder, and in 1678, William ordered that it be extended. In the early 1680s, William and Mary spent a lot of time there, um, and also at Sosdyke, retreating to these houses with a very small number of people. While William hunted, the Queen arranged her porcelain collection, did needlework, and uh, tended the gardens. Mary seems to have been seized by the beauty of the Dutch countryside and soon after arriving in Holland began to uh, build uh, um, gardens of her own and collect uh, exotic plants. At Onselaasdijk, uh, an orangery was built and she received um, each week flowers in season for her apartments. At Deeren, uh, which I show you now here, there'd been no garden. Uh, new walks were added, fountains and grottos and arbours, 
um, for Mary to enjoy while William was out hunting. Mary had an intense sense of her regality, which was reinforced by the terms of her marriage, which insisted that she was treated with all the honour that she was used to in England. One consequence of this was that William was the only one of sufficient rank to sit down and dine with her. As William had previously held an open table and dined with eight or ten companions, the newlyweds at first ate separately, Mary in stiff formality and William uh, with his friends. And then a compromise was reached. William kept a table in the middle of the day and in the evening he retired to dine with Mary, banning political or military conversation and joking and, uh, and laughing with his wife. Their relationship was actually unusually intimate for people of their rank, and they even uh, slept in the same bed, which is very um, unusual for someone uh, so important. Mary's uh, sense of status prevented her from forming intimate relationships with the ladies of the Dutch Republic, and so she passed her time in her houses and gardens, playing cards, doing needlework, enjoying music, reading and at her prayers. Like many a bored millionaire, she was a shopaholic and spent recklessly on luxury goods, often leading and sometimes making the fashion. In theory, her dowry was £4,000 a year, but William frequently had to top this up. In the Royal Library at uh, Windsor Castle, there is one of her account books, and this details everything she's spent, uh, from jewellery through gloves and fans to Chinese porcelain. In a marginal note in 1688, she wrote, wrote that she hoped William would, and I quote, forgive the debts I have made. If God gives me life, I shall pay them as fast as I can. If not, I hope the prince will let none be wronged by my follies. Despite her profligacy anxiety, Mary had an extremely happy life, noting in 1689 on her return to England that she had no small reason to doubt if ever I should be so happy in my own country as she had been in Holland. The death of Charles II and the accession of James in February 1685 was completely unexpected, and William and Mary suddenly became next in line to the British throne. Soon, a stream of visitors came from England, both those opposing the rule of James II and those sent by James hoping to win William's support. Now, Acutely conscious of their own status, William uh, and Mary embarked upon an aggrandizement of both their court and their residences. Mary, as I've explained, had always retained a sense of her own regality, but this markedly increased after Charles II's death, and it was noted that she was now served at table by kneeling pages. William and Mary's elevation almost exactly coincided with an influx of architectural talent to their court. Uh, Moritz Post, 
the Stadtholder's architect, had died in 1677 and was succeeded by a man of lesser capability, Johann van Sweeten. Other than the construction of an orangery at Hosselarsdijk, no major commissions came his way, and his annual salary of just 600 guilders a year suggests that he was responsible for only minor works and maintenance. The important work of new design passed to the former sculptor turned architect, Jakob Roman, who was first paid for design work in the Stadtholder's accounts in 1684. Five years later, when William was king, Roman was to inherit the post of Stadtholder's architect at an increased salary of a thousand florins a year. But before that, he had already won William and Mary's confidence and become their principal architectural designer. In 1685, Louis XIV uh, revoked the Edict of Nantes, which had given protection to French Protestants, who we know uh, in English as the Huguenots. In the resulting exodus of refugees entering Holland was the astonishingly talented and versatile 24-year-old designer Daniel Marot, who quickly came to the notice of William and Mary. By 1686, he was so integrated into their architectural projects that he was calling himself architect to his highness, although he never occupied such a position. Before Marot, the work of Dutch architects like those in England was confined to the architectural shell of the building, and patrons, with their upholsterers and suppliers, decorated the interiors to their own taste. What Marot did was took control of the whole appearance of William and Mary's houses, their gardens, and even their court festivities, integrating architecture, furnishing, and planting. And I show you on the screen here uh, one of Marot's interiors. It's in fact at Hetlow, which I'll go on to talk about in a few minutes. This is Queen Mary's uh, library, and you can see here. Um, the, the brilliant fusion of uh, um, objects and architecture and painting to create a, a wonderful um, interior. So, from the mid-1680s, this new team of Roman and Marrow began to transform the setting of the Stadtholder's Court. And this can be seen perhaps most vividly and in, in an engraving that Marrow made of a party at House Ten Boss in 1686. William's grandmother had left the estate to her daughters in 1675 when she died, and for a decade the uh, ladies had struggled to maintain the house and gardens. In 1686, William was finally able to persuade them to sell it to him for 10,000 guilders. Mary immediately commissioned Marrow to redecorate their apartments, and in December that year, threw a tremendous ball in honour of William. Although William was actually unable to attend, amongst the guests was the Prince of Brandenburg and numerous foreign ambassadors. And Marrow took control of the whole event, uh, and his engraving shows the Orangezaal, the great domed uh, room in the centre of the house, with a ceiling newly painted by him, and the Princess Royal's crowns 
prominently displayed above each door. He also redecorated William and Mary's apartments, rehanging the walls with silk, uh, painting two ceilings, and redisplaying Mary's porcelain collections for her. By this stage, Roman and Marot were collaborating on a new venture, a hunting box, or Lusthof, literally a pleasure house, not far from Deren, called House Hetlow. The medieval castle there was purchased in 1684, and the date on the front of the central block today is 1686, the date it was finished. It was built on a new site and was essentially a Palladian villa, like the Villa Tieni. The main block was a square and quadrant colonnades linked it to flanking service blocks. It was built around a central hall and stair leading up to a first floor hall, either side of which were two identical three-room apartments, neat, symmetrical and compact. It was similar in plan to any number of contemporary small French country houses, and it was, in many ways, rather old-fashioned. So these were the places in which William and Mary lived in the Dutch Republic. The houses were perfect jewels, set in beautiful gardens, sparsely but richly furnished, their neat, compact apartments were clean and well-ordered. There was no machinery of state, no rules of etiquette, no fawning court, there was no hungry heir. In short, William and Mary enjoyed considerable domestic freedom, and while William was not away fighting the French, they made the most of their domestic existence together. Unlike King James I, who came to London ignorant of the workings of the English court, Mary had, of course, been born there, and William had made three substantial visits. Yet neither of them were much enamoured by what they found when they took up residence in London in 1688. The Queen privately expressed her dismay at what she regarded as the vanities of court ceremonial. But more generally, they had de designed their lives in Holland to be informal, comfortable, and free from restricting etiquette. Mary, in her diary, notes that she regarded their move to England as a loss of liberty. But William knew well the power of spectacle, pageantry, and show, and his first few months in England demonstrated he was a master of it. He entered Exeter at the head of an army, kettle drums beating, trumpets blaring, hoot boys blowing, with thousands of flags, including a huge pennant flying above William's head, saying God and the Protestant religion. In the middle of it all, surrounded by 50 gentlemen and pages, was the Prince of Orange himself. Each step of the way, William took every opportunity to meet the monarchical expectations of both the people and the political class. Whatever William's personal feelings were about the formality and ceremony of the English court, he knew he had to adopt it. First, because he had to demonstrate his legitimacy and royal power in England was inextricably bound up with the ability to play the part of the sovereign also because he wanted to persuade his new subjects to back his war with France. The best way to do that 
was to be the magnificent monarch that they expected. William's court was different from that of his predecessors, not because he was shy, boorish or Dutch, but because it was a court with a unique dynamic and one in which the king had regular and frequent absences abroad. As a result, court ceremonial was episodic, marked by his regular departure in the early summer and return in the autumn. To celebrate these, he invented some new ceremonies. These were the leave-taking and welcoming audiences that framed his annual travels. Either June or July, the king would receive delegations from the city, the church and the judiciary, as well as the aristocracy and the gentry to bid him bon voyage. On his return, normally in early October, he would receive a ceremonial welcome lasting several days. Very large numbers attended these as they signaled the, court, the start of the winter court season. The traditional court celebrations on the 5th of November acquired extra meaning, as it was also the day that William landed in England in 1688. The king's birthday was on the 14th of November, and so the celebrations were doubled. There was normally a concert and a ball, and sometimes dining in public, and fireworks. Before 1689, these were held at Whitehall, but by the end of the reign, they were held uh, at Kensington. The whole of London was en fête. The shops were closed, the church bells rang, and the ordinance of the tower was discharged. In February was Princess Anne's birthday, and after 1694, this was celebrated with great balls, normally held at St James's. Uh, in the summer, uh, William would sometimes give concerts in the gardens or in the gallery at Kensington, attended by large numbers of courtiers. William and Mary loved the theatre. Mary would go publicly in Covent Garden, but William uh, enjoyed plays at court and even commissioned a theatre to be built in the Great Hall at Hampton Court. In fact, William and Mary presided over the most expensive court of any of the Stuart monarchs, and in due course were to spend quite a lot more than any of the others on architecture too. In 1689, William uh, found himself at Whitehall, and here you see Whitehall more or less in 1689, um, uh, in a view by, by Kip. It was a vast, rambling, overpopulated urban residence, lying low beside a polluted river and surrounded by hundreds of belching chimneys. This was not the place for a man who loved small houses in the countryside and suffered badly from asthma. Within days, William and Mary had moved out of Westminster to Hampton Court. Mary, of course, knew the place from her childhood, but her memories, if they had been fond, were deceptive. She wrote to a Dutch friend, and I quote, At the moment, I'm in the country, in a place that has been badly neglected. It's about four miles from London, but lacks many of the commodities of Deerham, although the house does have four or five hundred rooms. William, and I quote again, found the heir of Hampton Court agreed so well with him that he resolved to live the greatest part of the year there. But that palace was so very old, built and irregular that a design was formed of raising new buildings there for the king's and queen's apartments. 
the bed of state, which had been at Windsor, the official summer residence of Charles and James, was moved to Hampton Court, and Wren was commissioned to come up with a design. William, melancholic, homesick and ill, was eager to move in as quickly as possible, and orders were given for a general court remove from Whitehall to Hampton Court. The decision was met with horror. Keeping the court out of London was bad for the city's economy and dreadful for the sanity of his ministers, all of whom lived in and near Westminster. So the king was persuaded to look for somewhere closer to Whitehall and quickly settled on the second Earl of Nottingham's house in Kensington. And what I show you here is my friend and colleague uh, Edward Impey's brilliant reconstruction of um, Nottingham House, as it was called, that William and Mary bought with its surrounding grounds for uh, £20,000. This uh, Jacobean mansion was no more suitable for William and Mary than Tudor Hampton Court, and Wren received a second commission uh, to, uh, from his new masters to modernise and extend Kensington House. Meanwhile, the King and Queen rented Holland House in Kensington from where they urged on work on both projects. It was in this way in which King William III, in a matter of months of his accession, redrew a centuries-old pattern of royal habitation. Whitehall was now the centre of the national bureaucracy. Kensington was to be William and Mary's normal town residence, and Hampton Court the Palace of State. And this arrangement uh, replicated almost exactly their pattern of existence in the Dutch Republic, because Whitehall was equivalent of Binnenhof, a little-liked official residence, House Ten Bosch and Kensington were the suburban residences close to the capital, and Hampton Court was the treasure house of state, more like Honselersdijk or Hetlow. In 1689, Kensington House was a compact Jacobean villa with a central hall and rooms to either side. This is actually a slightly conjectural plan, but shows more or less um, what Nottingham House was uh, like. The idea was to enlarge it by the addition of four corner pavilions and a long gallery connected to an, uh, an entrance on the east. And here you see um, uh, uh, Edward Impey's reconstruction of that, and you can see, I think, at least three of the corner pavilions uh, clinging onto the corners of the Jacobean house, and to the left, the gallery that linked the house to the, um, to the street. Uh, one of the pavilions was for the king, one was for the queen, one contained uh, staircases, um, and the arrangements within each pavilion were extremely modest by English uh, standards. There was a single room of state, and the monarch's lodgings were all designed to be private. Kensington was, in fact, closely based on William and Mary's houses in the Netherlands. William had, in fact, designed a residence planned in the Dutch style. In 1689, uh, Sir Christopher, who you see here, had been um, a surveyor of the king's works 
for 21 years. He had faithfully served both Charles II and James II as a courtier and a Tory, that is to say, a supporter of the Church of England and an opponent of the exclusion of Catholic James from the throne. Thus, Wren was deeply implicated with the old regime. His sympathies lay firmly with the expelled James and his hold on the surveyorship of the works must have been at best uncertain. William and Mary's arrival caused a radical redistribution of government and court offices. Over half of all court officials lost their posts, almost all replaced uh, by men who had um, supported uh, William's uh, arrival. And Wren, of course, could not be numbered amongst these people. In all this change, Mary was the one strand of continuity. The new queen knew how the court worked, both socially and politically. Her re-establishment of normal Stuart court life was vital in establishing the legitimacy and efficiency of William's reign. So too was the normal and efficient functioning of the Office of Works, including the immediate construction of two palaces and the completion of the Queen's privy lodgings at Whitehall. In the end, only two of the personnel of the Office of Works were replaced in the Williamite purge, and their head, Sir Christopher, survived. And this was probably due to Mary's favour um, of him um, and her admiration, particularly of his work at St Paul's Cathedral. Because for Mary, the completion of the cathedral was a vital part of the spiritual reformation that she believed that England badly needed. Wren was central to the uh, future of the cathedral, and everyone knew that. So design work for Hampton Court um, and Kensington took place against the background of uncertainty at the Office of Works and Wren's concerted attempt to secure a fruitful and effective modus operandi with his new patrons. And into this mix, already complicated enough, William and Mary introduced their own architectural advisers. By December 1689, Jacob Roman was already in London, and soon after, so was also Daniel Marot. These two had, of course, as I've explained, led the translation of the Stadtholder's architectural image into a kingly one in the Netherlands. Now, there's no written evidence that Roman's views were sought on either the design of Kensington or Hampton Court. But of course, he, unlike Wren or the English Office of Works, understood William and Mary's liking for modest, brick-built houses designed on the principle of pavilions. It's entirely possible that the final appearance of Kensington owed something to a three-way conversation between Queen Mary, Wren, and Roman. If its layout was influenced by Roman to reflect the king's and queen's domestic preferences, its interiors also reflected their Dutch tastes. The queen's rooms were decorated with 787 pieces of porcelain, arranged in the manner of Daniel Marot, like the queen's houses at the Netherlands. And this is one of Marot's designs showing the uh, superfluity 
of uh, uh, Chinese uh, ceramics, which uh, were introduced into uh, the new building at Kensington. Design work for Williams' houses in Holland and England was undertaken concurrently. Designs and models were prepared wherever William was, and they were sent backwards and forwards. At House Divorced, built between 1695 and 1700 by William III for um, Van Keppel, uh, who was created Lord Albemarle, one of William's uh, favourites, um, a wooden model was made in England under Jacob Roman's supervision for the approval of William and Lord Albemarle, and then taken to the Netherlands. In December 1700, while William was at Hampton Court, Charles Hobson, his English master joiner, arrived bearing a model he'd made of the staircases at Hetlow. But Kensington, as the private residence of William and Mary, may have been singled out for special attention by William and Mary's Dutch advisers, a point, uh, I think, illustrated by the stylistic relationship between Kensington and Hetlow. Returning to the Dutch Republic as king in 1691, William realised that uh, Hetlow was too small for the entourage that now accompanied him everywhere, and he ordered that the building be recast as a royal palace. The design of Kensington was fresh in his mind, and in fact provided the model. The original quadrant colonnades, which you see on the screen here, were removed, and exactly as at Kensington, Roman added pavilions on each corner. And if you look at this um, perspective here, you can see the original house, the square central house in the middle, and either side of it, left and right at the front, the pavilions that were added on as part of the extension. He then added two further pavilions to link these to the service wings that pre-existed at the front. In, the, in plan, he had essentially reproduced Kensington. But this effect of gradually receding compartments, focusing on the entrance front, made Hetlow more like uh, Charles II's palace at Winchester, which was unfinished, but perhaps more um, significantly, more like Versailles, in giving uh, the house a much greater sense of scale. At the same time, the interiors of the house were upgraded. Uh, in the first phase, Lou had been very much a hunting lodge. All its interiors were painted timber, and you can see one of the rooms here with its painted uh, timber um, ceilings, uh, marbled um, but with a paint effect to make them look like uh, uh, marble. They were, in fact, of course, timber underneath. Um, the new rooms were now given plaster ceilings with deep mouldings of fruit and flowers. Daniel Moreau uh, created a suite of remarkable painted and decorated interiors for the new apartments and the principal rooms in the old building. And you can see here the great central hall on the first floor, which Moreau decorated um, and the, the ceiling which he painted. Um, Hedlow also had rooms now necessary uh, for uh, William and Mary as king and queen. For Mary, there was a large Anglican chapel with a royal seat facing a pulpit and an altar behind a rail. For William, there was a new dining room 
which I show you now, where he could dine in public. Moreau gave special attention to this, with rich, deep painted and gilded plaster mouldings and tapestries, which were integrated into the wall compartments. On the first floor, and I'm showing you my reconstructed plan here, um, the original three-room apartment was supplemented by a second apartment of state with an audience chamber. So in the main block, you can see left and right of the salon, there were effectively three rooms, um, which are described as the king's anteroom, the little bedchamber, um, and the cabinet. Um, but in the pavilions that were added, which you can see to the left and right, there was a second uh, suite of rooms, which were designed to be the rooms of state. William, in fact, continued to use the original bedchamber or slep camera, which you can see labelled little bedchamber, which after all overlooked the gardens, and the new bedchamber, the bed camera, which I have labelled um, King's State Bedchamber, was the state bedchamber, which contained a monumental angel bed, Lie de Ange, which I show you a, a, an image of here by Daniel Marot, an extremely tall and grand structure, um, <clears throat> which was a, a, a bed of state. So Hetlow was uh, transformed from a hunting lodge into a palace where um, the, the king of Great Britain could exercise some of his state functions in a small suite of state rooms. Mary sadly died before she ever saw the second phase of work at Hetlow, and William didn't use it much before 1698, and so their intended long-term pattern of use uh, cannot be known. But it was 70 miles, a good 20 hours ride from The Hague, and it's clear that although William needed a small suite of state rooms, the house was, as explained at the time, a place for the king to withdraw to, and I quote, free from wars or weary of government. And the English travellers who saw it certainly thought it rather neat than magnificent. So looking at Kensington and Hetlow, we can see that the monarchy of William and Mary was not the only thing that was international. Their buildings were designed as if they were in one country, with the Dutch architects feeding off the English and the English off the Dutch. And at the heart of it all was a tension. The difference between an ancient monarchy that was conservative, cumbersome, bound by its own rules and regulations, and the stadtholdership, a unique headship of state that was deliberately not monarchical and allowed its holders to live without the straight jacket of courtly protocol. What William and Mary created in England attempted to bridge that gap. Kensington was essentially a Dutch country house. Hampton Court, when it was finished, was an English palace of state. William knew that he needed both to be an effective monarch, but he also knew which one he preferred to live in. The story of William and Mary concludes my survey of Stuart Royal Houses. It's the last piece in a jigsaw of English monarchy between 1603 and 1702, a hundred years of Stuart rule and architecture. James I and William III were both brought up in residences where informality reigned. Courts, which were small, 
intensely personal and adapted to the whims of the sovereign. In order to escape the lumbering formality of the English court, James built houses outside London, including incredibly unpalatial townhouses like Royston and Newmarket, where he could live in easy and uncomplicated life. William III did the same, constructing out-of-town palaces that matched his residences in the Dutch Republic. And both James and William hated Whitehall, the largest, grandest and most public, indeed most formal, royal palace in all Europe. Charles I and Charles II, however, were both wedded to the systems of court etiquette and the architectural structures in which they operated. They both loved Whitehall as a setting for both a court, an art collection, and a way of life. However, neither of them were able to enjoy it. Both were forced to recreate the stuffy formality and deference of the English court in circumstances of war and exile. This they did with remarkable success, given the catastrophic circumstances in which they found themselves. All four monarchs, embroiled in dynastic and political revolutions, found the context of their lives disrupted and worked hard to create a setting for them that suited their conception of rule. These theatres of rule, compared with those of the Tudor century before and the Georgian one that came after, were unusual, complicated and international. But appreciating that helps us understand the Stuart century of revolution. Well, I'm very pleased to say that I've been invited back next year for another series of lectures. I shall be staying in Tudor and Stuart, England, but looking at the estates of the power-broking families of the age. And I shall be starting with the houses and lands of a family that rose to the greatest height and fell with an almighty crash, the Bolins. And I very much hope that you'll join me in September to hear about them. Thank you.